Welcome to Season 3 of Purposeful Empathy. My name is Anita Novak, and this show is all about amplifying the voices of people around the globe who believe the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. This episode was brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I'm joined by Caitlin Ugalik Phillips, who is a journalist and editor based in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's a proud graduate of Elon University and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. She is the author of Future Feeling, get that right, this, um, Building an Empathy in a Tech-Obsessed World, which I have so enjoyed reading. When it came out last year, Newsweek called it a must-read nonfiction and said, Phillips presciently probes the impact of technology on empathy and lays out what we can do if we're not willing to give it up. Welcome, Caitlin, to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to talk to you. Um, I really care deeply about the issues that you talked about in the book. And I guess I want to start with like, why did you decide to write it? What inspired you? Sure. Um, so as an elder millennial, um, I basically grew up uh, with social technology and kind of seeing it evolve um, and experiencing all the different levels of it from live journal and Zanga to AIM, AOL Instant Messenger, and then, you know, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, RIP. Um, and I, you can hear my daughter in the background. So I she's definitely, she's, she's somewhat of an inspiration now as I continue my work. She wasn't here yet when I wrote the book, but um, I basically just kind of had seen that evolution and had so many experiences of essentially living life online where empathy seemed to just be something that could have just made those experiences better for everyone involved and just wasn't part didn't feel like part of the of, of that world um and at the time I was working at a financial magazine and writing about technology and all of these um everything from social technology to you know just um like internet of things you know refrigerators that can talk to you that kind of thing and I just started to think what you know as technology is clearly just going to continue to accelerate who if anyone is thinking about the role of empathy and is this just going to get worse or are we going to be able to make it better um and i wanted i bought a couple of books that i thought might answer that question um and they did not and so i thought well i have these two degrees in journalism maybe i should try to write that book so <laughs> that was the yeah. inspiration so that begs the question as you were doing your research, I mean, you certainly spoke to some of the most interesting experts out there at the sort of intersection of technology and human emotion and empathy in particular. What did you learn that gave you hope? And what did you learn that really kind of gave you pause? Let's start with the pause so I can end with the hope. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, a lot gave me pause. I think probably one of the biggest things was um, learning more about facial recognition, um, AI, and the way that from the very beginning, there's just been this gap with people of color, that these, these algorithms um, were taught how to recognize faces using mostly white male faces. And, you know, you can just look at that in a vacuum and say, oh, yeah, obviously, diversity is important. But then 
it started to play out in ways. The example I use in the book or one of them is a Google image search um, for, I think the search was for gorillas and in the images came up pictures of black couples. And then in the reverse, people, black folks and other people of color having issues getting facial recognition, facial recognition systems to recognize them as people. And those are just the starkest examples of how how did how did no one think of that how did or did they think of it and just decide that it didn't matter you know right. so that that definitely gave me the most concern and the most pause um but then on the flip side i found a lot of hope in pretty much every interview i did um especially when it came to uh the people who are working on ways to teach kids how to think about empathy from the start as they learn to use technology um and also with virtual reality, um, I think what gave me the most hope there, and a lot of the book is about virtual reality, and I talk about a lot of ways that it's being used to kind of inspire empathy in people who inspire empathy in people for groups that they're not part of. But I think what gave me the most hope was actually talking to Dr. Courtney Cogburn, um, who is a sociologist and doing a lot of research on this and the way that she and people like her are making sure that that research is not acting like this is a, a magic bullet is really focusing on, okay, what is the actual usefulness of this? Can we actually quantify that it helps people show more empathy and does that empathy lead to action as opposed to just making you feel good oh, now I've had this VR experience and I understand what it's like to be someone else in the end. So, so the, the, the behind the scenes work that's being done um, on the sort of race and gender level of, of um, like diversity and inclusion initiatives and do they really work? And then on the teaching kids how to use tech with empathy gave me a lot of hope, but it's still all still so early. So it's hard to talk about because there's not a ton of real world examples, but I just want people to, my hope with the book is that people read about some of these things and think, okay, we can't see that happening yet necessarily, but it's good to know that someone is thinking about it and working on it behind the scenes. And, you know, we can try and support those efforts um, for a better world. Now you raise VR and it's a really, really compelling chapter. It's a complicated, nuanced, in progress kind of conversation. You had experiences actually with uh, VR yourself and you describe them. Um, could I ask you to sort of share one that still stays with you because it's just, it, 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 it marked you in some way? Sure, yeah. So the one that really sticks with me um, I believe it's called 1000 Cut Journey. And this is the one actually that I talked to Dr. Cogburn about. Um, and she and I actually did an interesting interview. We were both on Science Friday and I was talking about the book and then she's there to kind of give a little bit of a counterpoint to my hopefulness, but in the end it kind of ties together. So I recommend listening to that as well. Um, but a 1000 Cut Journey is about a young Black man who kind of grows up and you, for the most part, play as him. It's a full body virtual experience. So you put on a haptic backpack and hold these controls that become his hands. And then you also have the headset. So you're seeing what he's seeing. And the most striking thing is, you know, the first 
time that you look down at your hands and, you know, you see the hands of a young black boy because that's, you know, what you are in the, and just something about that, like that connection between all the senses and, and that sort of embodiment really kind of puts you in a space to, um, I think to trigger more empathy. Now, then that's where you get into, you know, that doesn't immediately make you not racist. It doesn't change everything about, you know, but if you're um, kind of predisposed to be interested, what it's like to be someone else and really curious, it can, that can really kind of take it a step further. And so that, that one definitely sticks with me because I came out of that experience, not feeling like, Oh, now I get what it's like to be a young black man, but like, Oh, that experience is so different from mine. I'm never really going to understand, but what can I do in terms of empathy and action to, you know, get closer and, and to help in some way. Um, so yeah, it was really fascinating. I loved when you described that in the book. So thanks again for sharing it with our viewers and listeners. Um, what can individuals do to make empathy a bigger part of their social tech experience? So the biggest thing is sounds like nothing, but is so important. And it's literally whenever something triggers a response in you, um, a tweet that you see, a Facebook post, some, anything, is to just take a minute and take a deep breath before you do anything. And this is, it's just essentially mindfulness. Everyone's telling you to do this all the time, but that really does help clear the way for empathy. And there's a lot of research on the fact that when you're heightened and you're in that fight, flight, or freeze mode, your brain can't really do empathy. It can't really do compassion, concern. It, 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 it's hard to, to get into those nuanced things. And so the social culture makes it so that you feel like you have to say something about everything and right away. Um, so you can be part of the conversation or so you don't miss out or so you can get more followers and cloud or whatever, but taking just a minute to take a deep breath, calm down your nervous system a little bit can really help like remind you that there are other human beings <laughs> on the other end. So that's the most, just the most basic thing is what can you do to, kind of regulate your, your um, nervous system to help the compassionate, empathic part of your brain come back online. Now, is everyone going to do that? No, go ahead. <laughs> well, because okay, so it's so alive for me. And I, I, I want to come back to the question in case you have other suggestions. But the, just the other day, um, my fabulous social media coordinator sent me an email saying, I just saw somebody post a comment. I've taken it off. Do you want me to um, unfriend them? And it was a woman who used to report to me and another, she had another line of reporting. This is like 10 years ago, more, more than 10 years ago. And over a period of time, the relationship you know, at work um, didn't go in the right direction and we had to let her go. And so the post was, how dare you, I need to know back, talk about empathy when you treated me like such crap. Mm. And when I read it, I was so triggered, like oh, just a terrible feeling. Like I've been outed publicly and she's like 
telling me that I treated her like crap, which is like a terrible feeling to kind of own. And it, it just so happened that it was early in the morning and my husband and I were going to the gym together and I spent the time kind of like working it off, but it took like half an hour or more to kind of like calm down from what it felt like for me viscerally mm-hmm. to actually get to a place of, wow, if she's done that 10 years later, it really must still bother her. And I ended up reaching, I, I, she was blocked. So I couldn't reach her through my Facebook page, but through my husband's Facebook page, I wrote to her and I say, I got your message. And if ever you want to talk, cause you want to find some closure or you have some things that you want to share, I'm ready to listen. And I'd be happy to have a conversation with you. I haven't heard back from her, but it's so alive for me because I mean, I don't know if anything will come of that, but I expect that I'm going to have some like really toxic social media um, at some point, and I'm not sure how I'm going to handle that. Like, I'm not super popular yet, but I just think the minute there's any notoriety, like, I don't know if you've experienced that. Like, have you been whiplashed in any way? And how do you manage it? Interestingly, since publishing the book, the only place I've seen things like that is in reviews or direct emails to me. Um, and it's typically just like, why was this book not about something else that I think it should have been about instead of what it was about? So that's a little bit easier to let go of. But back when I started thinking about writing the book and starting doing the research, I was in- involved in a lot of situations like that. I was in a lot of Facebook groups, big groups of writers, big groups of feminists, big groups of you know activists in different ways. And things like this happened all the time. And those were some of the experiences It's just, I think that the people who created these platforms and taught us to respond like, you know, to the dopamine of getting a notification and all that knew this about, you know, how the brain works and that, and that we were going to be prompted to respond immediately while we're in that heightened state. And then that will make someone else respond and then make us respond and keep it going. It's about, you know, how long can you stay on this website? But what that's doing to our relationships and our brains and our mental health is not great as we now know. Um, But yeah, taking, you were able because you were already on the way to the gym to, you know, work it out and start to take the other person's perspective. Um, That can be a lot harder if you spend your whole day on a computer or on your phone or, Um, if you don't have, for whatever reason, the presence of mind to think about, you know, what's my role in this. And I think a lot of people are also reluctant because of the way that like pylons can happen on social media, even when you know, like, oh, maybe this person is saying this because they're hurting or because they perceived something I did in a different way than I meant it. And I should have empathy for that it's hard to respond in that way because everyone can everyone's watching the conversation if you're not doing this in dms you know and then you have more people who can either misunderstand or have a different perspective and it just so in some ways and i talk about this in the book it's like well then these places just aren't the places to talk about important things but this is where a lot of people live especially over the past year you know with the pandemic people are literally living their lives on these social networks that's not really in question anymore so we have to talk about these different ways of communicating there and um remind ourselves to take 
those deep breaths and to maybe I love that now we have um, mute options on some of these um, platforms instead of blocking and unfriending because you need to take a break from someone mute them you're still friends friends you know on the platform but you can you don't have to see what they're doing if you notice that a certain account or type of content is triggering you know negative responses in you or making you feel like it's harder to take another perspective you can curate that you don't have to follow um everyone all the time and I think sometimes we need to hear that because it can feel like you know a lot of this stuff is mandatory now so okay so I love what you're saying right take the mindful moment and pause and see whether or not you can recalibrate um you know the the fight or flight you know stimulus what about younger kids that are growing up in this environment what are you saying you've spoken to some psychologists are you getting a sense of what's happening on the street like I teach young 20-somethings they seem all super confident they're super well networked they're you know bright 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 kids at McGill and we do some exercises and empathy exercises and just below the surface there's like so much loneliness and so much anxiety and so much fragility like you know uh, I'm concerned yeah that's really hard I think I will say that I think a lot of that and and I've kind of changed what I think about this a little bit since the book since writing the book but I think a lot of that is often attributed to the technology and obvious, I do think that's a part of it, but I think that it's more that technology, especially social media has uh, perpetuated some of these things or sped them up um, or facilitated these issues. I mean, we had that book bowling alone. How long ago was that? 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, before, you know, so th- this has always been an issue. I, it, I do think it's accelerating and there are, so it's a really hard thing to answer, right? And it's a, it's a mental health thing. It's a, um, there, there are so many kind of upstream factors, but in, in the tech world, there are some pretty cool apps and programs that people are starting to put out there that um, are kind of in the realms. So the book talks about kind of two realms of empathy. So kind of how to have empathy for each other while using technology and then how creators of tech can have empathy for their users. And so in this area, there's just been a whole proliferation of apps that are meant to help with mindfulness, help with mental health, um, and not just the ones that connect you to a therapist, but there's really cool um, games. So I talked to Jane McGonigal, who's just one of the coolest people in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. She's created a bunch of games um, or several that uh, help people who have experienced traumatic brain injury or have depression or anxiety um, work through those things in kind of a healthy, fun way and um, just kind of help bring you that dopamine and that happiness in a, in, in a healthier way. Um, so there are games and then for kids too, there are apps that um, kind of help build connections and help them learn how to talk about their feelings in different ways. And um, also ones that really encourage perspective taking, uh, you know, and, and therefore empathy. Now, the, the response is always, okay, but you're just using technology to try and fix problems that technology created or perpetuated, which is definitely fair. Um, from what I learned from the experts, 
it's that these are kind of part of an arsenal of tools, right? It doesn't solve the problem if you, over the past year, especially, <laughs> you know, the book came out on February 1st, 2020. Like a month later, we got, all got thrown into lockdown and I didn't realize there was gonna be this big social experiment in living online for over a year. Um, having those tools doesn't, you know, negate being lonely, literally isolated at home and things like that, or if you have a mental illness. Um, but that's why they're tools. They're, they're part of the toolbox. And it's encouraging to me that more and more schools um, are starting to use um, either the tech versions of these things or just explicitly teach empathy, perspective taking, compassion, kindness as part of their social emotional um, curriculum. So that's, that's another place where there's hope, but it can't, there's just a, such a tendency with tech, even now in 2021 to say, okay, this thing is going to solve all of our problems. And we just, we need to see them as tools that can be um, used for good or not so good as we've all experienced. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm such a, a proponent. Like, you know, there's this whole effort around STEM because the world, as you say, you know, the technology is advancing. We need to be like coders, engineers. We need to understand all of that. I'm on board with it. I get it. But I've heard a lot about esteem, right? Which is two extra E's, one for environmental sustainability and the other one for empathy. And I feel mm. like those, that SEL, the social emotional learning curriculum that you're talking about is more crucial than ever side by side with all the other stuff that kids need to mm -hmm. learn. And because if we're looking at whole person development, um, that SEL stuff is absolutely necessary for us to be, you know, happy, healthy, vibrant, thriving young people, you know, for a future generation. And to, and to positively or neutrally impact other people. I, I talk about how the, the kids that are going to be creating the next round of technology, they need to be, they need to have this foundation of empathy because one of the problems we have is that, as we talked about at the beginning with the facial recognition, a lot of the people that created the things that we use now were all kind of the same sort of person and didn't take into consideration potential um, unintended consequences of people who are different from them or what the experiences on these apps and platforms would be like for people who are, who are different from them. Um, and growing from a basis of empathy, I think will, should help with that. And I, and from the few kids that I was able to talk to or learn about, um, they seem to get it. They seem to get that, which is, which is good. <laughs> So to make that really kind of explicit, what advice do you have for creators and managers of tech platforms to imbue their technology with more empathy? Um, you probably have great ideas, but you need to open up that table and to people who aren't like you, because that it's, it's good for empathy, but it's also just how you make great stuff that works and people like. You need to have people at the table, creating things with you who look different from you, who come from different backgrounds, who experience the world in different ways so that you create something that can feel safe and useful um, to anyone. I, I think about recently 
there was an issue with Slack um, where they decided, okay, now we're going to let you message anyone using their work email address, even if they don't work with you. And you can send them private messages and, um, you know, they have to accept them, but they can see what, what you're saying. And a bunch of people of color, women, you know, other people of minority groups were like, excuse me, you're just, you're just opening me up to harassment while I'm working. This is going to happen. Um, you know, it's on Twitter, on Facebook, everywhere else it happens. And the people at Slack essentially were like, oops, we didn't think of that. Come on. At this point, <laughs> what do you mean you didn't think of that? <laughs> you know, we see that that's what happens. And I think it's because people are thinking about solutions to specific problems and not about what someone with a different experience than them, how they might perceive those problems. That's the empathy that is missing. And it's not that hard. I mean, just, you know, hire someone who, who's different from you or multiple people, you know, do, do focus groups do, I mean, I'm not a consultant in that field, but I, I don't think, I think at this point, there's not really an excuse. That's not really a mistake. It's a choice um, to focus on one thing over the other. And it's in, as you can see from that situation and a lot of situations with these other platforms, it doesn't end well. So even if yeah. you're not doing it from the goodness of your heart as a business decision, you know, get on board with empathy. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you're talking really about design thinking or human-centered design, and the D school right, has right. come out with new um, new models around human-centered design that also has equity embedded into it as well. So we just need to like one level it up. You know, there's no excuses. Yeah, you I say. love that, right? Yeah. And it needs to not be. I think a lot of this, the whole um, uh, diversity and inclusion industry, has kind of been siloed off from. Um, development and UX and all that. And it, that just doesn't make sense. They, you right. know, it needs to, um, but I love hearing that, that having that equity piece is starting to get woven in um, because you're talking about human beings, by the way, when you, when you talk about these things, uh, you're not, it's not just like something to check off a list. You're, you're talking about the other human beings you work with and who are going to be interacting with you um, and who are just trying to live their lives <laughs> and might have a different experience. So for some people, that's obvious for some, they need a little bit of empathy training and that's fine. That's why people are working on these, on these things I wrote about. In the book. Yeah. And so we'll make sure I'll send you the link, but I'll also include in the description below so you can learn more about um, that kind of design thinking. Um, yeah. Speaking of the human factor, uh, I love now it's been, a, I don't know, half a season where I've been asking guests to share a story if one comes to mind. Uh, and I love them. They're so juicy and so beautiful. Not to put any pressure, of course. Um, if you can think of a time when you were on the receiving end of empathy or what I call purposeful empathy, so intentional kind of empathy mm -hmm. and what that meant for you, what happened and how, why that was important. I love this idea of purposeful empathy because it takes, I feel like it takes everything I, I wrote about and researched and like to the next level um, of action. Um, but I guess, you know, what's, what's 
most successful in my mind is, you know, I just had a baby about three months ago and that is a very intense experience. I was unfortunately pretty sick in the week after. So I was in the hospital, I had to go back to the hospital and, um, the experiences that I had with some of the nurses while I was there, there was one nurse in particular who she, you know, clearly she's had this conversation many, many, many times, but she was able to really show true empathy and compassion, um, telling, talking to me about, you know, it's going to be hard when you feel hopeless, like, you know, just know that that's going to pass. And if you need help, you deserve to ask for help. And it's totally normal for breastfeeding to be difficult. Don't let anyone tell you that you're, you know, doing anything wrong. Uh, Set boundaries with family and friends. You deserve to do that. She just said all of these things, looking me in the eye. And of course I cried and I said, can you come home with me? (laughs) Um, But that was just like, really, she really went above and beyond. um, Not just taking care of me physically, but being sure that before I left, I knew that someone really cared and, um, and thought it was important to remind me of my worth as an individual and not just a mom uh, before I headed home with my tiny baby. So that was a really powerful moment of empathy that I don't think I will soon forget. Well, I'm feeling emotional resonance. I'm feeling empathy with you as you share that story because I can so imagine can how powerful see. that conversation was. <laughs> yeah, um, but you you give me two. You give me um, the opportunity to say two things as we come to kind of a close on our amazing conversation. And oh, here, let me do it one more time. Catch this book. You don't want to miss it. The storytelling is. This the right way. The storytelling is absolutely fabulous, but the content is rich and thought-provoking. So I really recommend the book. But the two things that I wanted to just say is one, you give us uh, an opportunity to just think about all the heavy lifting that the healthcare professionals are doing these days, and just to send kind of a little bit of love out to all of them. Uh, and the second thing, since there's a story about you being a new mom, I just want to acknowledge how much I appreciated that you found the time to have this conversation with me and that we did hear your daughter in the background at the beginning and you somehow managed to stay focused. But I love the fact that we didn't shut off for like the perfect timing when she was not crying anymore um, because we need to give each other space to be fully human, even Mm -hmm. at work doing the work that we're doing. And I think it didn't take anything away from our conversation. And if you listen back to it, you know, she was there with you. So right. thank you so, so much. Thank Yeah, I, I want to say actually that I, I have hope that um, we talked a lot about how the past year has brought a lot of these things to light. And I think that one potential positive thing is it's gotten more acceptable to have your kid in the background of a conference call or a zoom or to have to be flexible. I think people are, are kind of uh, getting hit in the face with the fact that their employees are human and have families and are trying to juggle a lot of things at once. And I'm hoping that there will be some lessons of empathy that come out of that, that we can take forward um, even when we're not in the pandemic. So thanks for bringing that up as well. Here, here. So thanks to everyone who's watching and listening. We'll see you next time at
purposeful empathy. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter, make that important decision, and liberate you from whatever is holding you back? At Grant Huron International, you get to select the coach of your choice anytime from any place. Visit GrantHuronInternational.com to harness the power of on-demand coaching today.